The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today, Ifi, we are starting the day <laughs> eye to eye with a crow, an owl, and an intimidating looking eagle. But I will say this, the crow is the chatty one at the moment. Now we're all at the Wildlife Haven in Ildeshay, Manitoba, where the mission is to rescue injured animals, rehabilitate them, and release them back into the wild. But before being set free, it's always good to fill up on a little breakfast. And this is the kitchen. This is where uh, 300 animals in, in care means 300 mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we need to cut meat up in, in tiny pieces and hand feed them to them. That, for all uh, of these are those mice that are on the thing? Yeah, good eye. You've got mice and rats. Um, I don't know exactly what Bronwyn's preparing this morning, but... Are you sprinkling seasoning onto the dead mice? Like, what's happening? This is supplements for our um, raptors, so uh, eagles, um, hawks, owls, things like that. So because it's not, like, fresh from the wild, they just need extra supplement to help them, you know, heal faster. I never thought I'd see the day where someone was sprinkling supplements on top of a dead mouse to give to another animal. This is wild to me sometimes it looks pretty fancy with like salads and and i'm like oh that does look pretty good (laughs) and then you realize there's a mouse tail in there and you're like not the same yeah exactly breakfast time (laughs) a morning meal has never looked so gross to me in my life but it's important today because one of these animals is getting out of here and executive director zoe nakata can't wait yeah, it, it's really pretty special. Um, I mean, these animals, like you said, they're not bred to be to be with humans. So there's a respect that, that we always have. Like, we don't pet them. We don't treat them like puppies. These animals have been, first of all, living here for so much longer than, than we have. We're just kind of guests on these lands. So to, to be able to be part of, of that and then to set them free where they belong, uh, that for me is the absolute best part of my job why is that like you you lit up like your whole face just lit up when you said the word free oh my god it's the best thing (laughs) so you know i'm i'm metis indigenous background and a lot of people that i've been with have have this notion of of us all being connected and and these wild animals going back to nature having um just significant meaning on on different levels for different people um but yeah i I have been a little bit emotional once or twice and and you know even now after five and a half years of doing this it's still special every single time and what are we what are we releasing today so today we're going to release a juvenile eagle. And we actually have the location of where it was with its parents. And we've spotted the parents. Um, so we're hopeful that it'll have that reunification with the parents. Because this one is this year's baby, so still quite young. Now it may be this year's baby, but this is a big bird. And it wants out of this cage. So we go to the field where its parents have been spotted. And Zoe lets me know that I'm going to be the one setting this eagle free. And I'm a little intimidated. So we're going to release uh, the eagle from about here, put the crate and the grass here, and then you're simply going to open the crate uh, just like you would for any dog or cat, hold the door open, step back, and uh, we're going to let the eagle do its thing. It's going to go wherever it wants because <laughs> that's what wild animals do uh, when they get that, that freedom. Just be mindful of your fingers. I mean, it is a wild eagle. I take no responsibility for your digits. <laughs> You know, this is exciting. Now it's terrifying. Like, it's just, it shifted very quickly. I'm about to release a bald eagle back in to the wild and let it be free. Doors open. Oh my goodness. It's out. It's out. Look at that. There it goes. Flying beautifully wherever the heck it wants. I don't think there's anything that's going to top that today. It's a pretty awesome way to, to spend your day, if I can say so myself. What else can we let free? <laughs> well, it's Friday, so I'm going to head off into my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's breaking free. 
Five minutes later, Ify, I saw that bird perched and proud sitting up on top of a tall tree, just looking out at the world. To know a freedom like that is, is the dream. But a quick glance around the world is a reminder that freedom is rarely that simple. And the stakes are very high. What are you willing to do for freedom? How do you actually break free? And is life much simpler on the other side? Today on Now or Never, we're going to be with people searching for freedom in their lives. For the past four summers, I have been sleeping outside on my deck. And you feel this amazing universe that we are a part of. Uh, and we're so small in it. And it just, it kind of helps to, you know, maybe take yourself a little less seriously. The moment I dropped all the, that weight, all that doubt, and really started believing in myself a lot more, the decision to pursue my dream didn't just become possible, it became a no-brainer. I got to enjoy cooking more, because that was a big thing. Oh my god, like he used to criticize me on my cooking. Be like, what the F is this? Now I get to cook and I cook my way. I don't have to worry about that anymore. This is Now or Never. Freedom! Let me show you some of my work. So this is a work here that's in progress. This is a woman from Afghanistan who escaped a couple years ago when the Taliban came in and took over. She's living here in Canada now with her child. In a small studio in downtown Toronto, Galad Cohen is showing his latest artwork, a striking six-foot-tall photograph of a woman staring directly into the camera. So over here we have about 1,800 hand-glued stones. You'll see here, depending on how the light um, hits it, this is what I love about the beauty of this work. If it's displayed in a window, depending on the angle of the sun, the work is glittering. But if you look into her eyes, really close, do you see the seeds? So there's four and four, so it's eight, which signifies eight million Afghan refugees who've escaped. So These days, Galad makes his living as an artist, doing photography and creating beautiful installations. But just over a year ago, his workday looked a lot different, and it left him with a lot of stress. So at this point, I'm the executive director of Jayu. I have a $1 million budget that I have to raise every single year and a team of 10 people whose salaries I am responsible for. Every day I am waking up and I feel like the end of the world is about to happen. That was the feeling in the pit of my stomach. Jayu is a charitable organization that serves young artists in Toronto through workshops and events. Now, Galad founded the organization back in 2012. So you could say that it's his baby. But what started as a small film festival grew into a charity with employees, a board of directors, and a million-dollar operating budget. And for Galad, that meant a lot of fundraising and a lot of numbers to crunch. I would always say that I was a blend of a car salesman and a clown. I would go in and try to sell the organization to potential funders and sponsors, and then I would perform like a clown afterwards. I'd perform, you know, what our impact was. I'd try to make people happy, but there's nothing really romantic day-to-day -day in being an arts administrator. It was knee-deep, elbow-deep, neck-deep, eyebrow-deep in spreadsheets. I got swallowed up in my job. Being the founder of a charity, the success of the organization is inherently tied to your own success. So if you fail, if you don't get a grant or something like that, it feels like you personally have failed as well. It's an insurmountable amount of pressure that you put on yourself. I would say that I was the epitome, the poster child of not being balanced. Uh, food, Nutrition, gym, what gym? What are we talking about here? It's just anxiety. I'd wake up every day, have a glass of anxiety. I was just an anxious mess. And it starts to become normalized that we're giving so much of ourselves away in order to create this better society. I actually had a mental breakdown towards the end of my time at Jayu. I had to take a three month leave. And then I did my eat, pray, love thing. I went to Nepal, I climbed a mountain. I started feeling a lot better, I started meditating. I stopped drinking. I was feeling a lot more whole. And one day in Nepal, I never told anybody this, but I had a dream that I was in a Zoom meeting with my staff and immediately I was thrown back into that anxious place again. And I realized in that moment that I'd had probably given everything that I could to the organization and it was time to go. Art to me is like medicine. And so it came to a certain point where I realized maybe my anxiety at work is coming from the fact that I'm not able to give myself that space to create. 
I was providing these big, beautiful platforms for photographers and filmmakers and poets to express themselves. But all I was doing was just writing the grants to create that space. And so it was clear, the writing was on the wall. It was time to give up one dream, a very stable dream, <laughs> a dream that pays my, my rent for something maybe a little bit more unstable, but you know, to bet on myself a little bit more. Ever since I was a young kid, I wanted to be an artist. And growing up in an immigrant household with a single mother, artist is not an option. It's like lawyer, doctor, engineer, something that makes money. So being an artist was never a thing. It wasn't until my mid-30s where I realized, because I'd seen so many artists around me that were able to make a career and make ends meet, that being an artist was even a remote possibility. And so I had to go through a huge personal journey where I had to undo and unlearn a bunch of the things that I was raised to, to know. But I was also afraid because I'm 39 years old. Is this a midlife crisis? Am I really going to become an artist? I was kind of worried to figure out what parts of myself would I unpack. But I think the thing that worried me the most was would this organization survive without me there? And what would happen if this thing died? Was it all for nothing? So I grappled with that for a long time and then I realized if this organization continues amazing, more people get to be impacted. But if it stops existing, if it has to go under, that's also really, really great because for the 11 years that it was there, it had an undeniable impact and it helped build community in really powerful ways. And so I made peace with that. A lot of people dream about walking away from their nine to five jobs. They think about all the things they could do if they didn't have to go to work the next day. For Galad, the first day after leaving his job looked restful. I slept in. I, <laughs> honestly, it felt like a huge weight off my shoulders. I called my cousin in Florida. We met up in Maine and we went camping. We splurged, I got like a yurt with hot water inside. I was like glamping. I, I felt free. But I remember the first day after I opened my studio, I just locked the door. I put a record on and for six straight hours, I just lied down on the floor and just meditated. <laughs> I had no pressure, no accountability to anybody but myself, but I no longer had this like $1 million beast hanging over my shoulders. I was able to just have the space now where I could create. And so it felt very freeing. What we're gonna do, the secret to this, is every time the light flashes, you're gonna slightly adjust a little bit. So what that means is like if you're holding like this, once I take the picture and light flashes, you go like that a little, mm. you can put your chin down a bit. Being a new full-time artist and not being on a salary comes with certain sacrifices. You know, um, I have to be more financially responsible. I can't get everything that I want. I can't go on as many vacations as I want. And I do have to take gigs sometimes that I don't like doing. So are bills being paid? Yes. Am I doing the dream work 24-7? No. But some of that responsibility that I used to hate having, I no longer have anymore. And so for that, I'm really grateful. This work can be really lonely. There are many days where I welcome the loneliness. It gives me time to, you know, think and create. I miss the, the hustle and the bustle sometimes that came with being an executive director. I miss uh, being up on stage with some of our world's most incredible people. But my studio space also like doubles as a lounge. I invite people to come in here and have conversation. I invite people to come in here and spend time with me. And my mom and I FaceTime like two to three times a day. Um, I counter it with just a lot more friendship. Basically, my great-grandfather was murdered by Nazis in 1940, 1941, when my, when my grandmother was four years old in Romania. She had to be put into an orphanage uh, where she lived until she was 18. And that story impacted us when we grew up. We learned about her suffering. Uh, we learned about her struggles as a Jewish person. And of course, we learned about this thing called Never Again. Yet people all across the world continue to suffer. And so I'm working on a portrait series right now. I've sourced a light bulb from the year my great-grandfather was murdered. So I'm photographing people with light from the Holocaust to shed a light on human rights stories today. When my great-grandfather was murdered, Nazis raided the home and stole a bunch of gems and jewelry. And so I'm photographing 18 individuals, people who've escaped from North Korea, refugees from Afghanistan, Syria. And not only am I photographing them in this old light, but I'm also encrusting them with these gems as a way for me to reclaim what was stolen from me, but also as a way so that when you're looking at these portraits, light literally shines back onto you. And the exhibition's called Never Again, and Again, and Again, and it will be debuting in 2024.
it sometimes feels that we are living in a time that feels more divided and in more pain than ever. Jews aren't free. Muslims aren't free. Christians aren't free. Nobody is free until everybody is free. Until apartheids come to an end in the Middle East, until occupations come to an end in the Middle East. And for me, the awareness piece is the most important. How can we solve our world's problems that sometimes feel so intractable without even knowing about them in the first place? And so I use my art as a way to stir that conversation, to help people become aware that there's still very real human suffering that's happening day to day. Being an artist comes with a certain amount of privilege. It might sound romantic to just say, blow it up and leave and follow your dreams. And I recognize that not a lot of people can do that. I think about single mothers, I think about newcomers who don't know the language, I think about people who face all kinds of systemic injustice. But oftentimes the thing that is stopping us is sometimes ourselves. And for me, the thing that stopped me from pursuing my career as an artist for the longest time was me. It was me doubting myself. And the moment I dropped all the, that weight, all that doubt, and really started believing in myself a lot more, the decision to pursue my dream didn't just become possible, it became a no-brainer. And so, you know, when thinking about what that dream of yours is, maybe ask yourselves all the reasons why it will work out rather than all the reasons it won't. Galad's work is stunning, and we have video you can see of him showing off one of his pieces, using the stones and seeing them shimmer as they bring the piece to life. Just go to our CBC Now or Never Facebook and Instagram page. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu, and today we are talking to people searching for freedom. One of the hardest places to break free from might just be our own minds. Growing up, Keith Hodder felt something was different about him. And whatever that difference was, it was wrong. So for 28 years, he fought that feeling by trying to be perfect. I did everything I could to have as little wrong with me as possible. And that included, yeah, not drinking, not even drinking coffee not smoking or getting high, uh, being very focused in school. I definitely became a bit more isolated and withdrawn as I got older. And I think, you know, that's where those rules that I started to set up, that's when you see their limits. Keith and I are gonna get together for a formerly forbidden cup of coffee to get into it all. That's later on the show. You know, growing up, Evie, I have this distinct memory of uh, going to my friend's house for a sleepover. And when I got there, I was told by the parents, oh, we're doing this fun thing. You guys are going to sleep outside tonight. And I was like, that's information I should have known beforehand because it was terrifying in my mind to be outside. I think I was like nine years old. And all I could think to myself was, I know this is supposed to be this like cathartic, freeing experience of being out in nature and sleeping under the stars. But I will tell you this, all through the night, Every noise I heard was straight from a horror movie. Any creak, any whistle, any crackling of the leaves. All I could think of was the worst case scenario. And I never did it again in my life. I just, just keep me inside. That's all I wanted to do after that. But Donna Kane is a little bit braver than I am. And that's because for more than 100 nights now, she has been sleeping under the stars on her old cast iron bed just outside her farmhouse in northern British Columbia. Getting ready for bed to go outside is not any different, really, than getting ready for bed uh, in the house. Uh, if it's cold, sometimes I put long johns on, but I don't need to do that tonight. So, yeah, we just, you know, brush our teeth and get in our uh, bedtime gear and get ready to head outside. Oh, it's still windy, but oh my gosh, it is so warm. And as I step outside, I can see Jupiter. And it's so clear. And I think I can see a bit of the Milky Way. 
My name is Donna Kane, and I live in Rolla, BC, in Northeast British Columbia. And uh, I sleep under the stars, and I sleep out there to appreciate the night and, and the beautiful night skies. Oh, okay, so I'm in the bed, and I'm just pulling up the covers. I have this amazing blanket that uh, belonged to my mother. It's like New Zealand wool, and it's been freezing at night, but we haven't uh, been cold at all. For the past four summers, I have been sleeping outside on my deck. It's an old cast iron uh, bed frame that we've, we pulled it out and uh, refinished it, and uh, it has a bullet hole in the headboard. I don't know how that happened, but someone was probably target shooting. You know, I have all the proper sheets and whatnot, so it feels like a real bed, and uh, sometimes on my own, sometimes with my husband, Wayne. Here comes Wayne. Yeah, I was just saying we can see Jupiter. Jupiter, shining away. Yeah. And Pegasus. It was, it was during the pandemic, and I think everybody, you know, like everybody or like many people, feeling kind of like trapped. Uh, we we're under lockdown. And it was just one, one late August afternoon, I just went out onto the deck and laid down with a blanket on the lounge chair and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I could see, you know, the first stars were coming out, a bat streaked by, and I thought, wow, this is like, this is opening up to a much bigger world. And so I, even if I can't leave my yard, I'm suddenly in, I feel like I got, I have so much more space and there's, there's things going on and there's other life, you know, doing their own thing. So um, after that one night, slowly evolved to my fourth season of sleeping outside. And I hope I can just keep doing it. Why do you sleep outside, Wayne? Well, because you're here, basically. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good part of it, Don. I'd follow you anywhere, you know that. Right now I can... I can smell the the fresh air um there's a breeze blowing i can hear the wind go through the poplar trees um i can hear sparrows rustling in the lilac bush uh, finding their little space for the night i can hear coyotes in the field i did have uh once uh, this was before i started sleeping outside i did have a bear that came up on the deck but it's, it's so rare that, for me, it's like it's worth the risk. I think that the only wildlife that comes onto the deck would be mice or magpies. But I have had other birds come land on the bed. I had a hummingbird come check me out. When you're laying there and you kind of let the, the outside world just absorb you and you feel that this amazing universe that we are a part of uh, and we're so small in it and it just it kind of helps to you know maybe take yourself a little less seriously I think uh, freedom is is huge in sleeping outside for me it I'm I'm out of the house and the you know the sounds of the fridge and the furnace and all these things that are human-made and I'm out in a, in a natural world to feel that you are part of something much larger. It is kind of awe-inspiring to sort of realize how important the night is. It's almost like I'm broken wide open. It's an exhilarating feeling to reunite with, uh, with the sky. It did freeze the other night, and we had a little sort of very sort of skiff of frost on the duvet. And you have to get real and realize that you're heading toward the end of October, so it's, it can't last much longer. The geese went over uh, the other, well, we woke up to geese. They formed their V, they were heading south. It's like, yeah, now we're at the end. And then it's just taking the bed frame apart and, yeah, and moving back inside, which isn't, you know, 
It's always a bit sad and waiting for next spring. What's wild to me is that there's pictures of her bed in the middle of a field surrounded by horses. <laughs> she wakes up next to horses. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. But good for you, Donna. If you want to see photos, though, head on over to our CBC Now or Never Facebook and Instagram pages. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we're joining people searching for freedom. When Shanique Baptiste is feeling especially stuck, she looks for guidance in the cards. I did it last week, which kind of helped me find clarity and it ended up playing out. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for you, the cards are like, it helps you think about your future or something yeah, that you're like, trying to figure it out. Yeah, like near future, present moment, like whatever you're asking about, it usually plays out. Ooh, these ones already jumping out. Yeah, so basically. Exploring tarot is just one of the things that Shanique is finding room to do these days. So this one means that I'm looking for solutions in my life that I'm not going to get right away. Yeah. So it's kind of like a turbulence. Not long ago, she was experiencing abuse in an intimate relationship where someone else was holding all the cards. So the certain things I couldn't do, like if I went out with my friends, we would get upset. My friends came over and stayed for a long time knowing that I had to drop my son in the morning. Like, he would be upset or that night they left, I would get things thrown at me, like shoes, books on my face or being pushed against walls and stuff. So my friends didn't really know what was going on until I started talking about it. And then she was putting me down every day, like you're nothing like you're stupid you're a bitch and this was all happening in front of Javion and it affected him definitely affected him what were you noticing anger a lot of anger burst um he was trying to make us stop arguing and I most times I try to walk away because I know like how it is I used to see my parents argue so like it's a lot and then I think my last straw was when he tried to like I wanted to sleep in another room, in, in Jamie Young's room. And I took one of my pillows and I went there and he was arguing with me about doing that. And so from when I did that, he stopped me from getting food in the fridge. He stopped me from eating any type of food, from anything that his parents bought from Costco for us. I couldn't touch it, no groceries, nothing. So I had to go outside in the snow and buy Domino's pizza so that I can eat. Yeah, he was not letting me eat at all, mm. like at all just because I wanted to sleep in another room. And so I decided to just change. Like once you die, your whole life will change. And I packed up all of this stuff in garbage bags, shoes, everything. And I made sure that I called the cops. I had another friend who I went to his house for the time being until the cops were able to get there. And so cops took him, I pressed charges. So um, it was hard. I was struggling financially. Mm-hmm. So I was always going to food banks. And then I tried looking for work. Uh, that's when I started to work at a daycare. Mm-hmm. So that also started to help. And it was big. It was a lot. After struggling on her own, Shanique finally found some support. She reached out to an organization that helps young mothers and their children and was able to move into a townhouse with her two sons, who are now six years old and five months. It's given them a chance to get back on their feet for now. As we're talking about this and we're sitting in this place now, yeah. like this place is feels like a place that you were able to come and be free of him. Yeah. 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 Did it feel that way when you when you got here? Yeah, because now I, I'm pretty, it's free. I get to start over with my kids. Mm-hmm. And even when I move out of here, I'm not moving with no guys. I'm definitely starting over and learning to live on my own. For a while yeah yeah the dream yeah yeah <laughs> was there something because you you mentioned like the person you were with was restricting you seeing your friends yeah restricting you eating food mm-hmm. like what was what was one of the first things you did when you were here and you were like okay it's just me i can do 
I can do for me? What was one of the first things you did? Oh, I went on a walk. Uh, I went shopping. I <laughs> like cute shopping because my birthday was coming up. Yeah. So I did get birthday cakes. I got like a really cute birthday cake. Mm-hmm. I had some of the girls come here and spend time with me here. You got to have your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was pretty different. I got to enjoy cooking more because that was a big thing. Oh my God. Like he used to criticize me on my cooking. He like, what the F is this? So like, this is tastes like shit or like, now I get to cook and I cook my way. Yeah. I like cooking. I learn new recipes. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Like I enjoy cooking more. Like my love for cooking was taken from me and now I was able to rekindle that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that, that you're cooking and, and finding what you like. That was yeah. definitely good. I felt more independent and more of myself. Yeah. What feels possible from this place of feeling more independent and more yourself? Music, school. I'm going back for health administration online, working, like doing things the right way, how I should have done it mm-hmm. and not relying on a guy and like realizing that I'm stronger. I could do it on my own. Like I don't need any help. Like I'm figuring out who Shanique is. I can work and do all that by myself. Have you noticed any changes in your son and Jacob? Um, we're now working on therapy for him, but he's definitely a lot happier because there's a lot of kids here. So it's easy for them to just play. Yeah. And he has his friends and like, you know, it's easier for him. What are some of the, the, the moments that the two of you are able to enjoy now? I mean, not just the two of you because you have two kids, so yeah. three as a family. But um, what are some of the moments that you're able to enjoy with Javion now that feel real special? We dance a lot. So he loves to dance. He loves to sing. I also read to him at night. So he always asks for a book. I try to switch it from French to English. Oh. So I use YouTube because I cannot okay. speak French. <laughs> so I do that bonding with him. Yeah. Uh, walking to and from school, we always have a conversation. Hey, Javion. You like riding your bike? Are you going to be a superhero on the bike? No, I don't know how to train now. <laughs> I could be older if I train. Yeah? I'll be like taller. Yes, you're going to be a big boy. Okay, ride fast. Let me see you ride really fast. Okay. Good job. (laughs) Honestly, my biggest thing with raising him was to make sure that he wasn't sheltered. To make sure that he wasn't restricted from things. So I think seeing him do his own thing, it's like, oh my God, you're growing up. Because you're turning six tomorrow, so you're growing up. And I can't keep up sometimes. I mean, I'm I'm grateful. I'm happy that he's want to learn new things. It makes you feel like, yeah, I'm doing a good job, like as a mom, as a young mom. I do love the image of you to like playing and yeah. dancing, just being able to be in a way that you weren't able to be in that previous relationship. Yeah. It's beautiful to hear. Yeah. And it also makes me wonder about like, what are some of the challenges that are still here for you that are still sort of boundaries in your in your life to to living fully the life that you want? housing that's like a big part like why is the list so long yeah. like i'm working with my worker right now we just applied for another program so hopefully i do get into that program like i don't want to be back in a shelter again like i don't want to be back in a place where i don't have stability of housing mm-hmm. so i think that's a big challenge for me right now because like as much as it is you know home and a place that's held you and allowed you to be a bit free it, it has a time limit yeah yeah, yeah. When you think ahead to like two years from now, three years from now, what do you what do you picture for you and your family? Move out to the suburbs eventually and have like a quiet like life with my kids and like whoever I'm with, I'm with a partner. But that's what I see and I see us traveling. I see us doing a lot of big things and just bonding with them, having like a happy life. Yeah. I know for you, it's really important that you share mm-hmm. what you experienced and what you're what you're learning through leaving that relationship. Why is that so important to you to tell your story? Because honestly, it could help other women because I feel like other women can use these as signs. So like, oh my God, maybe I'm not overthinking this. I'm actually in this situation. Like now I know how to get myself out of it or like I'm strong enough to get myself out of it. Like I don't think any woman should be afraid of restarting because you get a new chance at life than to stay in a situation where, you know, your life can end. I think it's good to get it out there to help people. I think that's big for me. 
What was the message you were needing when you were feeling trapped in your relationship? That you can do it and like you're not trapped. You can leave and you'll be fine. Like you can do it on your own. And I had to like think about my kids, like think about your kids, like your kids are going to need you and they can't fully have you if you're under that type of stress. So I think realizing that I can do it on my own. I think someone's going to be really glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. This is Now or Never, the Freedom episode. I'm Ifi Chiwetel. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And I think, Ifi, when I think about when I feel the most free in my life, and I think you know this about me, it's it's when I'm out on the water. Which is so wild for someone who lives on a landlocked province. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think that's why it makes me so happy. Because when I get out there, it, I just sit there. I feel the waves beneath me, the wind around me. And I just feel the sense of calm that comes over me. And I think a lot of people find that feeling when they're either on the water, when they go camping, or if they're taking a hike somewhere. But what do you do when you live in a big city and are just constantly surrounded by people everywhere you go? Like, how do you feel more free in those situations? Well, sometimes it takes a big change, which might mean going real small. My dog is going to follow me up the stairs, so you might hear that. So I'm walking up my stairs. They are a full set of stairs with a hand railing. And when I get to the top, there's actually enough headroom for someone who is six foot four to stand fully beside the bed. And then as I get into my bed, I have to be careful because the roof is slanted. However, there is enough headroom if I stay on the side closest to the stairs. The space up here is a loft. I have some space at the end of the bed for whatever I want to put there for decoration or storage. Um, but after that, it is a steep drop down to the kitchen floor. That's Kimberly Wellfley in her brand new tiny home showing us where she and her dog sleep every night. Now this experience is new for Kimberly. She's only been in her tiny home since August, and although she's still getting used to her small sleeping space, this tiny home has opened up a whole new world of possibilities. It has given her the freedom to work just three days a week and spend less time doing things that feel more like an obligation. <laughs> Cleaning my house is a lot easier now that I have less than 400 square feet and I can actually clean my whole house in like top to bottom, cleaning the baseboards and the windows and everything in less than an hour, which is really nice. Here goes. Before moving into my tiny house, I lived in Brampton, Ontario, in a townhouse in a very busy section of the city. When I first moved to the city, I loved it. However, towards the end of my stay there, I realized that I was an extroverted introvert and I, I loved being around people who gave me good energy and were positive. Being around the complete opposite of that caused my own energy to drain and I needed to recharge by being in my house. However, being in Brampton, I was constantly surrounded by people. I, I lived in a townhouse. I had neighbors on both sides and there was always something going on outside. And it just, it took a toll on my mental health and my energy and I needed to leave. I knew that when I made that decision to leave the city, that it was going to be a tiny home or nothing. It was my only option for getting out. I love coming home to my house, nestled in amongst the trees. Uh, it's so pretty and peaceful with the sun shining and the breeze blowing. It's such a great feeling to know that I have 
gone for my dream and accomplished it and that it's actually happening for me. This tiny home has filled every expectation that I've had going into it. I just, I knew that I would be able to simplify my life and just do the things that bring me joy. I would like to be able to spend more time with my parents. They are aging. Um, I'm going to be needed there more often. I, I believe that moving into this tiny house is going to allow me to actually quit my teaching job and pursue my other passions, you know, starting another little side business with a friend, you know, that, that will bring me such joy. All right, what should I have for dinner tonight? I think I'm going to have a veggie stir fry. I really hope that I have enough propane for the stove and that the toilet hasn't used it all since it runs on propane and my floor heating as well. Let me just check. Do I have? Oh, good, good. Hopefully it doesn't run out while I'm cooking. I looked out when I got this spot at the trailer park. The lot that I am situated on is covered in a variety of trees. However, this campground closes in a couple weeks and I need to find another place to go. And I'm currently on the lookout for that. So I am trusting that I am going to find somewhere in the next 20 days to to park my house. I'm not completely oblivious to the fact that there is still going to be stress in my life. However, it's stress that I have chosen because I've been able to make those decisions to reduce my teaching contract or to how to spend my days off in between recharging. So I'm not saying that my life is going to be perfect. It's just going to be what I choose it to be instead of what is dictated for me through my job and, and or living in the city. If you are like me, you love to peek into a tiny home. Kimberly made a house tour video just for us. We will share it with you on our Now or Never Instagram and Facebook. We are both uh, here drinking our coffees. We, you don't cheers with coffee, but I feel like we should somehow. We should cheer, why yeah, not? like let's let's go for it. Okay. We make yes. our own rules. There we go. To to freedom. To freedom. <laughs> if you were to look into this Toronto coffee shop, you might assume that Keith Hodder and I are just two people enjoying a drink together. But what you're actually witnessing is someone slowly sipping their way to releasing control. I always said that uh, coffee was for the weak, mm. which is, I think is really ridiculous. But uh, I felt like it was um, a crutch. You know, I felt like it was something that uh, people needed to function. And I think the idea of needing that to function scared me. It was just coming from a very judgy place of like self-preservation, mm -hmm. I think, which ended up having the, you know, opposite effect, I think, down the road. Yeah. Before you ask, no, Keith is not religious, but for years, he's allowed an unwritten set of rules to run his life. I did everything I could to have as little wrong with me as possible. And that included, yeah, not drinking, not even drinking coffee, not smoking or getting high, uh, being very focused in school, um, and just being pretty regimented. You know, I always wanted to be a writer and filmmaker. And so there was many times where I would, especially when I got into university, I would, you know, 
avoid parties so that I could focus on schoolwork and really focus on my, my craft, which is what I did. You use air quotes when you say that. Is yeah. that like that focus wasn't really, wasn't really the goal? I was focused enough in school and driven enough in school that I got stuff done early. So I always had a bit of extra time, mm -hmm. but I think I used it as an excuse to be able to step away, to, to isolate myself. Um, I definitely became a bit more isolated and withdrawn as I got older. And I think, you know, that's where those rules that I started to set up, even though I didn't recognize it then, looking back at it now, though, that's when you see their limits. When did you first start to feel that for me specifically there is something that I need to adhere to, mm. to to be in the world I think it was something that I almost stumbled into it wasn't something that I consciously chose to kind of do or I think it was just a means of that self-preservation of kind of protecting myself so I came out when I was 21 mm -hmm. before I came out I still knew that I that I had something that was different about me and I think that felt like a flaw. There was like a scale of my character. That flaw was kind of weighing everything down a bit more. I was setting these rules to kind of tip those scales in my favor. And when you say like you, you felt that there was something like inherently flawed in you, was it that you knew you were gay or was it something like you just knew something was off? Yeah, yeah I didn't, I don't think I knew I was gay. It just felt that something, like, it felt like something was off. It just felt that there was something that uh, made me different and was a reason for me to kind of be excluded from uh, the group. Especially when I was growing up, you know, all my friends played hockey. I liked to read. I liked to watch movies. I liked music. Yeah, I wasn't particularly athletic. But I would say that was it, that idea of, of what it was to be a man or the need to be masculine, I think. And, and so... Unfortunately, at that time, and sometimes it's still a bit prevalent today, is the idea of being gay or queer is something that undermines that masculinity. Um, and that, I think, was something that was in my mind and in my, you know, in my head that was driving a lot of my actions, too, for sure. Yeah. Do you remember, you know, some of those thoughts or experiences that, that started to make you think, like, is this hurting me? Am I too big for this cage? One thing that really helped was I started dating my partner, I guess now my fiance, about six years ago. And in him, I saw a person who was responsible and focused and driven, um, incredibly intelligent and empathetic. But I also saw that he allowed himself to have fun. Something about him made me curious about what that fun was and how effective it was and what that could do and so that was helpful having someone that I trust and having someone I felt safe with uh, allowed me to start exploring if that makes sense it does so once you uh, I guess how did that even start were you like okay now I want to try some things now I have a list of things I want to knock off like what did yeah. you what did you choose to do no I think it was more so just I would like to try drinking. I'd like to get drunk and see what that feels like. I would like to get high and see what that feels like. And that's what I did. Yeah. I remember the first time I got high and it's incredibly cliche. Took a couple hits. Nothing happened because I also had never had a cigarette. So I didn't know how to inhale or do anything. So sitting there aimlessly thinking, okay, nothing's happening. And then finally kind of got the hang of it. The cliche is someone's like, let's put on a nature documentary. Let's put on planet Earth. And then somewhere along the way, I just remember there was this scene where these mountain goats were clinging to the side of this like cliff. And I remember finding it so mind-blowing, like way more mind-blowing than I would have ever. And I, then I just kept laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because... I'm, I'm sure while you weren't indulging in those kinds of things, you were aware of, of experiences like this and you were judging them. Mm -hmm. So what was the hangover, I guess, like emotionally of seeing yourself in that place that you have long judged? Well, that's it. I had to, I have to, I have to parse through it and sit with it and be okay with it. What are you learning about this version of you? 
Well, I learned, and if people could see me now, they'd probably laugh, but I learned I'm a good dancer, <laughs> which I didn't know. I can sing okay. I learned, you know, I really love a good, deep conversation, especially I did, I do sober as well, but I find just having a little bit of something just opens things up a little bit. I still, despite all of this, have a sense for wanting to keep creating rules for myself. That part of me is still there. The part of me that wants to kind of build another cage and hide in it is still there. Mm -hmm. And I have to, and I'm working on, I should say, uh, trying to recognize that. I'd, and I think that will, I'll have to spend my whole life kind of working through that. Hmm. To the, to the theme of this uh, episode that we're doing, do you feel freed? I think I feel a couple steps closer to freedom. Um, I wouldn't say completely, I wouldn't say 100%, but I would say I'm getting closer to it. It's just fighting those internal, uh, those internal cages or those internal judgments, I think. And the more I kind of try to resist them and not run away from them, but to kind of face them and try my best to kind of take a second and say, where is this coming from? Where is this voice and this judgment coming from? And if it's not coming from a good place, because I think most judgments typically don't, then I have to find a way to kind of keep pushing against them. And I think the more I do that, the closer I'll get to more freedom. Yeah. There is a lot more to Keith's story. A family history with alcoholism, a difficult relationship with his stepdad. There are layers and pictures in an essay that he wrote for us. You can read it at cbc.ca slash now or never. As always, you can check out our Facebook and Instagram for pictures and videos from our guests today. And the Now or Never podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. So give it a listen, share with a friend, share with two friends. Thanks to our Now or Never team of producers, Sarah Tate, Betsy Trumpener, Bridget Forbes, Katie Swales, and Tanera McLean. Take care, everybody. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.